0: Well, good evening, and welcome to Blogging Theology, and uh, this evening I'm very happy, to, very happy to welcome back Professor Ali Atai. Welcome back, sir.
1: Thank you so much. Great to be back.
0: And uh, and uh, Dr. Ali Atai, will, uh, before I go into what he's going to do tonight, I just want to briefly mention for the few of you who may not be aware of who he is, he's a, a scholar of biblical hermeneutics uh, with specialities in sacred languages, that's biblical Hebrew, biblical Greek. And other languages, theology, comparative literature. Um, he has taught Arabic um, and sciences of the Quran, introduction to the Quran and seminal ancient texts as well. Um, he has a PhD uh, in cultural and historical studies in religion from the Graduate Theological Union. Um, he's a native Persian speaker and can read and write Arabic, Hebrew and Greek. And he joined the Zaytuna College faculty in 2012. So, his proficiency in uh, Arabic, Greek, uh, and Hebrew um, might be particularly relevant tonight, where um, Dr. Ali Attai is going to share with us um, his thoughts on the 42nd chapter of the book of Isaiah. And uh, I'll obviously I invite you, uh, Dr. Ali, to explain why this is so significant, perhaps for Muslims, and what it tells us if anything, about another prophet, the prophet Muhammad, uh, who was to come later on. So um, without any more, um, any more from me, I'll straight over to you Ali, to um, talk about today's subject of
1: Isaiah 42. Great. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for having me again. Uh, let's get right into it. Uh, Isaiah 42 is an absolutely fascinating chapter in the book of, uh, in the book of Isaiah, in the Tanakh. Uh, Isaiah 42 is is what the classical Muslim exegetes reference invariably in their commentaries of the Quran's claim that the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, is mentioned in the Bible. Uh, So I just want to read this. This is from, um, this is called uh, Kitab al-Shifa by Qadi Iyad ibn Musa. He was a great Malachite scholar. This is a translation by Aisha Buley. Um, So this is on page 10 in my copy. So it says that Abdullah ibn Amr ibn al-As, who was a companion of the prophet, he said that the Jewish scriptures say, O prophet, we have sent you as a witness, a bringer of good news and a warner, and a refuge for the unlettered. You are my slave and my messenger. I have called you the one on whom people rely, one who is neither coarse nor vulgar, and who neither shouts in the markets nor repays evil with evil, but rather pardons and forgives. Allah will not take him back to himself until the crooked community has been straightened out by him. And they say there is no God but Allah. Through him, blind eyes, deaf ears, and covered hearts will be opened. And then something similar is reported from Abdullah ibn Salam in Ka'ab al-Ahbar. So this is is clearly a summary and paraphrase um, of Isaiah 42. And we'll see that. Uh, Christians, by the way, uh, believe Isaiah 42 to be predicting Jesus, peace be upon him, because this is what Matthew says. Um, Isaiah is actually the most cited prophet in the New Testament, and we'll get into that uh, as well, inshallah. But I want to first, however, talk about the book of Isaiah in terms of its overall uh, introduction, Mm -hmm. its history, um, its dating, its authorship, its Uh, theology. And and then I want to literally go through the entire chapter, 42, verse by verse. And the reason for the latter is because uh, I don't want someone to say, well, he only quoted, you know, part of it or half of it, or he's taking it out of context. What about this verse? What about that verse? Okay, so I want to look at the entire chapter within its greater context of Deutero-Isaiah, and I'll explain what I mean by Deutero-Isaiah. Okay, so the book of Isaiah contains a total of 66 chapters. Most Orthodox Jews and traditional Christians maintain that the historical prophet, Yeshayahu ben Amots, so Isaiah, the son of Amoz, wrote all 66 chapters in the 8th century before the Common Era. No historian of the Bible who is not a devout uh, Christian or Jew takes this position, as, long, as far as I know. Uh, If they're out there, they're very, very much in the minority. The general historical consensus is that the book of Isaiah was written by multiple authors across hundreds of years. So again, we have this sort of wide gap between the sort of confessional and non-confessional communities with respect to biblical authorship. Dr. Bo Lim, that's L-I-M, who's a professor of Old Testament at Seattle Pacific University and an expert on the book of Isaiah, uh, he mentions that even before the Enlightenment, medieval Jewish commentators said that parts of the book of Isaiah were not written by the 8th century BCE prophet. Uh, and isaianic uh, scholar Martin Sweeney also mentions uh, this in his introduction um, to the book of Isaiah in the, the New Oxford Annotated Bible. Dr. Lim, by the way, who himself is a Christian, Uh, believes that the book of Isaiah was written by multiple authors. And I would imagine that most of Dr. Lim's Christian brothers and sisters would find his view objectionable because it does seem a lot like the New Testament writers believed in a united Isaiah. In other words, a single authored book of Isaiah. In other words, if Lim is correct, then Mark and Matthew and Paul are seemingly incorrect. I don't know how Christian historians like Lim would square this. Obviously, he works it out somehow. Um, so, just a little bit of background here: in the 19th century, uh, German scholars established that the first 39 books of, uh, sorry, 39 chapters of Isaiah were written during the Assyrian period. So, like between 742 to 701 BCE, and they called it Proto Isaiah, meaning first Isaiah. Um, And then chapters uh, 39 through 66 were written during the Babylonian uh, period. So like 550 to 539 BCE, something like that. And this is called Deutero or second Isaiah. So this was the initial division, one to 39 proto and then 40 to 66 is Deutero. But then in 1892, a German scholar named Bernard Doom, okay, who was actually a student of Wellhausen, he, he modified this in his famous book. It was called The Book of Isaiah Translated and Explained. And according to Doom, and that's D-U-H-M, not D-O-O-M, Judero uh, isaiah should really be divided into two sections, okay, so chapters 40 to 55, which retain the title Judero isaiah but also 50, uh, 56 to 66, which is now called Trito-Isaiah, so third Isaiah, okay? And this third section was dated to the Persian period, so like 515 mm-hmm. CE uh, or later. Um, according to Doom, Proto-Isaiah was written or spoken by Isaiah, the son of Amos of Jerusalem. Deutero-Isaiah was written by um, an anonymous prophet in Babylon, and Trito-Isaiah was written by yet another Anonymous
0: prophet during the Persian period. So, just to clarify, uh, the, the the historical Isaiah of Jerusalem, uh, after which the whole book is named, uh, yes. is thought to credibly be connected with the first thirty-nine chapters of that book alone uh, exactly. from that particular period. The rest of the book um, is authored by unknown prophets or scribes or Jewish scribes, whoever. But we the historical prophet himself is associated credibly historically with that earlier section called First Isaiah or Proto Isaiah 1 to 39 only. Yeah, exactly. so just summarizing that. Yeah,
1: yes, exactly. Thank <clears throat> you. And and doom also originated the concept of the so called servant songs of Deutero Isaiah and identified four of them, so they appear in Isaiah 42, 49. Uh, 50 and 53. And by the way, the the oldest complete manuscript of Isaiah that is extant uh, is called 1QISA. That's the great Isaiah scroll found uh, in cave one at Qumran among the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947. According to the Israel Museum of Jerusalem, the scroll is dated to about 100 BCE. It's Mm -hmm. written on parchment and contains all 66 chapters. So this puts a gap of about 600 years between Uh, the life of the historical prophet Isaiah uh, and the oldest manuscript of the book that is attributed to him. Now, more recently, and this is over the last like maybe 25 years, many scholars have slightly amended the theory of doom. Okay, so while they still maintain this uh, tripartite uh, division of the book of Isaiah written at different times, so Assyrian, Babylonian, Persian. They now say that these three sections were likely written by multiple authors. So, not just three, but potentially dozens of authors. Okay, so these authors were devoted to the teachings of Isaiah, but they did not consider it uh, sort of uh, impious to expand and explain. Mm-hmm. Uh, their master's teachings with
0: additional writings, and also the the chapter uh, Isaiah itself contains big quotes, big chunks of quotes from other prophets and other parts of the Bible as well, literally yeah. verbatim quotes. So it's not as if it's all authored by one person. Sometimes they're they're gobbling up or uh, copying and pasting other bits of uh, the Torah as well. So yeah, just the whole what saying, But it, yeah, there is that too.
1: Yeah, there's a whole section in Proto-Isaiah which, it's identical to something in 2 Kings chapter 19. I mean, almost like you said verbatim word for word.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah. So so these so these were disciples of 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 Isaiah that belonged to what historians call the Isaianic school, okay? So according to these more recent scholars, the book of Isaiah is a compendium of the speeches, oracles and sermons okay. Of the Prophet Isaiah, written by his well, disciples.
0: Like, it's an anthology is an anthology, as well. It's, it's, a an, anthology. it's an anthology. An exactly. a collection of writings, collection of oracles, yeah.
1: sayings, whatever. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And and they would they would edit, they would add, they would revise the teachings of their master over a span of several generations. So it's a mm-hmm. composite work. This is John Barton's position in a nutshell. Yeah. But but this whole this whole issue of Isaianic Uh, authorship is highly disputed personally i'm not convinced that the book of isaiah had dozens of authors Uh, i do think that there definitely was an isianic school of some sort some sort of like order or guild of students which included other prophets who were devoted to the prophet uh, isaiah this seems very likely now jewish and christian apologists are very insistent about their belief Mm -hmm. that the book of isaiah was entirely the work of one man the Mm -hmm. prophet Isaiah in the 8th century BCE during the Assyrian period. The Christian, because, as I said, it would otherwise seem to contradict the position of the New Testament writers. Uh, For Jews, the consequence of Isaiah having more than one author uh, would be that they simply would not know who wrote the majority of the book, and that the traditional attribution of the book of Isaiah to one man is simply wrong, and it's been wrong for centuries. So let me summarize then the position of Orthodox Judaism in this regard, and then I'll respond to it. So if you were to ask, for example, Rabbi Tovia Singer about uh, Isaiah, uh, this is basically what he would say. I mean, I don't mean to put words into his mouth, but I've heard him speak about this topic in the past. So he would say that that all of the contents— of what would eventually become the book of Isaiah, okay, were written down entirely by Isaiah himself, okay? Uh, These writings were then codified, that is to say, he uses the word assembled in book form and then promulgated shortly after Isaiah's death. So this compilation was done by King Hezekiah and his court according to the Orthodox. Mm -hmm. So Isaiah wrote it, but he did not compile it because he was killed by his grandson Manasseh, according to Jewish tradition. He was actually, he was cut in half while hiding in the trunk of a tree, according to the Talmud. So that's the orthodox uh, narrative in a nutshell. Now, one of the main reasons that historians date Deutero-Isaiah to the Babylonian period is because Isaiah 45 explicitly mentions King Cyrus of Persia. Exactly. who did did not become king until 559 BCE. The the Orthodox, of course, they'll say that Isaiah himself predicted the name of the king Mm -hmm. some 160 years earlier through prophecy. And maybe Isaiah did. Obviously, I do not deny prophecy. But even with that said, there are other compelling reasons to date Deutero-Isaiah to the Babylonian period. So you'll hear an Orthodox Jewish uh, apologist say, you know, historians are atheists, and atheists don't believe in prophecy. And this is why they date uh, Isaiah 45 to much later. They can't even entertain the notion of prophecy or divine revelation. And my response is, okay, fine. But Abraham ben Ezra, who certainly was no atheist, in fact, he was one of the greatest and most respected commentators of the Tanakh in history, even he suggested that Isaiah 40 and beyond may have been authored later later. So Babylonian era authorship of Deutero-Isaiah is not strictly the argument of secular atheist historians who reject prophecy. There's other evidence that points to later authorship. First of all, the name Isaiah does not appear anywhere beyond chapter 39, not even once. And and secondly, the galut, right, the, the exile, is clearly in the historical background of chapters 40 to 66. I mean, just read those chapters, it's very clear. Deutero and Trito Isaiah are clearly addressed to an audience already in exile or then coming out of exile. And prophets, I would say, generally speak to their own generations, right? They guide, they console, they warn their own generations in their own time Unless they explicitly state that they're going to talk about the future. So if Isaiah the prophet himself wrote chapters 40 to 66, why is he talking to future generations and not his own? Yeah. Thirdly, while chapters 1 to 39 are more of a narrative style, uh, chapter 40 and beyond are more lyrical and poetic. I mean, it is a markedly different style. Okay, so there are good reasons for believing that Deutero-Isaiah was written during the Babylonian period. Reasons that have nothing to do with rejecting no,
0: prophecy. Indeed. I was reading Christine Hayes, professor at Yale, who's now uh, a specialist in on this subject, on this uh, question of authorship, and she also alludes to, uh, she, she can read, as you can, the Hebrew. And she said that the Hebrew language, the phrasing, the vocabulary even, uh, uh, from after 39, 40 onwards, appears to be different. It, it reads like a different hand, so it's not yeah. just a question of her being anti-supernaturalist or against prophecy. Yeah. It actually reads like a different person anyway. So it would naturally suggest that to the reader of the Hebrew. Uh, that's I think she mentions that.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, And and I would say the last piece of evidence is, is if Isaiah, the prophet, the historical prophet, mentioned Cyrus by name in the 8th century BCE, why didn't the prophets between Isaiah and Daniel also mention him by name? Micah, Jeremiah, Zephaniah, Obadiah, Ezekiel, none of them mentioned the name of Cyrus. In fact, in 2 Chronicles 36.22, written by Ezra in the 5th century BCE, Ezra says that Cyrus's action was to fulfill the word of the Lord through Jeremiah, yet Jeremiah never named Cyrus. Why didn't Ezra say something like, oh, this was the one that the Lord mentioned by name through Isaiah, if Isaiah had already mentioned his name some 300 years uh, earlier. Now, now I want to make this clear that the writings of the book of Isaiah, they are prophetic. That is to say, both proto and deutero Isaiah have this, what's known as an oracular or predictive aspect to them. At least this is what it seems like to me. For example, in Isaiah chapter 9 and chapter 11, Isaiah, the prophet, predicted the birth of Hezekiah. Um, Isaiah 14 speaks of the fall of the Babylonian Empire. Isaiah 14 is in proto-Isaiah, written in the 8th century BCE. The Neo-Babylonian Empire did not even exist at that time. It started at 625 BCE. So Isaiah actually predicted this. I believe that. And of course, a a critic here would say that these sections of Isaiah 14 were actually written during the Babylonian period by the Isaianic school and then placed back into uh, Proto-Isaiah to make it seem as though Isaiah had predicted this. But there's no solid evidence of this. And of course, this is what many secular historians must say. A secular historian will not assume uh, prophecy. Also, Deutero-Isaiah tells us what god said to cyrus now how did the author of deutero isaiah know this the answer is prophecy and again a critic here would say well he made it up but but i believe in prophecy and and even more than this uh, i believe that there is a midrashi aspect to isaiah the servant songs in deutero isaiah in particular in other words there is an oracular predictive aspect to these texts that is in addition to their peshat, right, their original historical uh, context.
0: Just to add to that, you've already said, and, and uh, uh, Christine Hayes also says that because we don't know, we don't know the, the identity of second Isaiah or third Isaiah, it doesn't mean that there weren't prophets at yeah. work in these texts. Right. You know, are unknown prophets, so they, they could still qualify as prophetic utterances, even if you don't know the name of them.
1: Yeah, that's that's a very good point, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so I, I would say that <clears throat> that um, Isaiah 42 has, has a double aspect, you know, it's, mm-hmm. and this is the nature of prophetic utterance. It's, it's mm-hmm. polyvalent, it has multiple layers of meaning, and I'll come back to this. This is really at the heart mm-hmm. of my argument, but let me give you sort of my final verdict on isaianic scholarship. Uh, So my position regarding the book of Isaiah is sort of a middle ground. I think it's the most balanced and convincing. I have no problem with saying that Proto-Isaiah was written or uttered by the historical Isaiah of Jerusalem and then compiled into a book shortly after his death. No problem. Deutero-Isaiah, however, I believe was written by an Isianic disciple about 150 years after the death of Isaiah during the Babylonian period. Now, if we're going to say as Muslims that Isaiah 42 is oracular, that is to say prophetic, then we must also say, at least for the sake of argument, that the original speaker of Deutero Isaiah must have also been a prophet, right? A Nevi Emet, a true prophet. He was a prophet of the Isianic school operating in Babylon during the exile. And as you said, we don't know his name. The vast majority of prophets are not known to us by name, Uh, but we do know that, like the adherence to the D school that we talked about last time, the Deuteronomistic school, the prophet speaker of Deutero Isaiah was a staunch monotheist. And we'll notice other very interesting themes as well. But his principal theme is Yahiduth, this type of uncompromising Tawheed. Okay. And the Quran- that-
0: that Isaiah is very Islamic in his emphasis on. on- yes. Absolute monotheism,
1: Tawahi, a, perhaps very more than any other prophet uh, that I'm aware of, extraordinary emphasis on the importance of that. So, yeah, sorry. Yeah, In the Quran hmm. it says in a, in a surah called The Prophets مِن مِن إِلَّا that we never sent a messenger except that we uh, inspired him that there's no God but me, so worship me. So, Tawheed is at the absolute core of the teachings of all the prophets. And the Quran also says, uh, um, that we believe in what was given to Moses, peace be upon him, and Jesus, peace be upon him, and the prophets, Nebiyun, Nabim, the prophets from their Lord. They're not named. So we have yeah. to we'll assume that the the author of deutero Isaiah was from them. So tohid, oneness of God is his principal theme. I mean, just look at his historical setting, the, the, the historical setting of the author of Deutero Isaiah sitting in Babylon, the ancient home of Abraham, the great iconoclast and, and quintessential monotheist. He's surrounded by mushrikin, right? Pagans who worship and supplicate the idols. The, the people of Israel are questioning God. They don't understand why this is happening to them. And while Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, was a prophet of doom, the prophet speaker of Deutero-Isaiah gives the people hope. There is a hope of restoration. Now, in Deutero-Isaiah, we have these four servant songs, okay? Who is this servant? Is it the same servant in all four songs? Are they different? If so, who are they? These questions have really baffled biblical scholars for decades and decades, and you'll get a variety of answers from both the uh, non-confessional sort of historical community, as well as from the confessional believing community. One answer, and this is the dominant position coming from the Orthodox Jewish community, is that the servant in all four songs is Israel. That's easy. And the proof text uh, of this is in chapter 41, verse 8. 41.8 41.8 of Deuteronomy, Isaiah, where it says, avdi, and you, Israel, are my servant. Ya'akov Asher Bachartika, Jacob, whom I have chosen. Avraham the seed of Abraham, my friend. So, according to this view, the servant in the subsequent chapters of Deuteronomy, Isaiah, must also be Israel. This is the peshat, the plain or evident meaning of the text, according to orthodox, most orthodox authorities, and it, it's a good argument, in my opinion. I can certainly see that. I, I don't totally agree with it, obviously, uh, but I can see the reasoning. Now, now, as I said, Jewish exegetes maintained that, in uh, addition to the peshat of a given text, there is also the midrash, and I talked about these during our discussion on. Isaiah 53. So we have the plain sense and the subtle sense. You know, we might call these the zahir and the batin, the ma'ana and the ishara, the tafsir and the ta'wil. There's different terms that Muslim scholars, and, and you know, there's different ways of thinking about these terms. So, so I said last time that at the level of midrash, a few Jewish authorities m- mention that the eved machovot, right, the suffering servant, of Isaiah 53, which is the last servant song, is a description of the future Josephine Messiah or even the Davidic Messiah. And I referenced Ruth Rabbah. But I want to remind the viewers of something, and this is very, very crucial. You know, these two aspects of scripture, the plain and the subtle, they cannot contradict each other. They have to work together theologically. They have to complement each other. So it seems to me that it would be theologically incorrect for a Christian to say Isaiah 53 at the level of the Peshat refers to Israel. But at the level of the Midrash, it refers to the Christian Jesus, who is a God, man, savior, who became a human sacrifice and died for our sins in a very real sense. Right. So that doesn't work with all due respect to the Christians. And I I don't want to disrespect uh, our Christian friends. And listeners and colleagues, I think in a previous podcast, I realized that uh, I might have been a bit too flippant when talking about Christian beliefs. So I want to be more careful as to how I say this. Uh, but I also want—I also don't want to water down these important points. Okay, Christian exegetes and apologists—they obfuscate clear theological verses in the Tanakh by reading them through the lens of their Trinitarianism, okay? And this is what they do even to uh, the Shema, believe it or not. The Shema is a very clear, unambiguous, unequivocal expression of uncompromising monotheism. Just uh, uh, just remind us what Shema is. The Shema is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. So, hear, O Israel. Shema, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Here O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so, right. and so some Christian apologists, they, they claim that even the Shema contains these sort of subtle allusions to the Trinity because Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai, right? So that's, that's three, three times. Mm-hmm. That must be the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The, the truth is the repetition, repetition in Semitic rhetoric is very common and has a very specific purpose that being emphasis. So in this case it is meant to drive the point home that God is radically one and that's the irony it actually denotes exactly yeah. the opposite of what some christian exegetes say it does. So it's it's not it's not hammering three nails into a single piece of wood. It's hammering the same nail
0: three times, one nail. Uh, this is for triple emphasis. Uh, and, and just also, uh, without going into this different subject, but Surah 112 uh, yeah. is well known to affirm the Shema in in the very first uh, verse of that with the word echad, or uh, in Hebrew, Echad uh, uh, in Arabic. It's the same word. And so it's the Quran is to be explicitly reaffirming the Shema, which is a Hebrew for here, here is a, which Jesus himself, according to even the Christian Gospels in Mark anyway, actually said, this is the greatest commandment. Shema. yeah and it, 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 what's strong. interesting
1: is sometimes christian apologists will even translate the De- deuteronomy 6 4 as the lord our god the lord alone because they actually want to avoid the word one you know it's, yeah. it's so strange the word echad however does not mean alone it means one the word lavad in hebrew means alone or solitarily as an Psalm 86.10, the Psalter said, Atah ilohenu levadecha, like you are God alone. And, you know, you mentioned also when Mark had Jesus, Mark had Jesus, peace be upon him, quote the Shema in 1229, he used the exact translation of the Septuagint. And the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Tanakh, translates the word echad as heis, which is the cardinal number one in Greek. Manas in Greek means alone. But again, some Christian apologists they really want to avoid the word one. Uh, again, it's so strange. It's almost like they have an aversion to saying God is one. The Quran says, <laughs> Don't say three. In <laughs> Inna God is one. So we find this repetition of this kind in Deutero Isaiah as well. And as I said, Deutero Isaiah is known for its uncompromising monotheistic worldview. I mean, it is a scathing. Denunciation of idolatry and the yeah. vindication of Abrahamic Tawheed, monotheism. So it's no coincidence that the two major biblical prophecies of the Prophet Muhammad, وسلم, the greatest monotheist of all time, uh, are found in the two most emphatically monotheistic books in the entire Tanakh, Deuteronomy and Deutero Isaiah, right? Deutero Isaiah says, You know, quoting God, I am, I am the Lord, and there is not beside me a savior. Isaiah 43, 11. Ibn Ezra said that the repetition here denotes that God is immutable, that unlike the heavenly hosts and earthly beings, God does not change. Even in the Quran, right? The scene at the burning bush, Ya Musa, inni anallahu rabbul alameen. Oh Moses, indeed I am, I am Allah. You know, this this means that God is the very ground of being itself. God is, right? His existence is necessary, while our existence is contingent and totally dependent on his. So this is what the repetition signifies here in the Quran as well as in Deutero Isaiah: that yeah. God is the real capital R, the haq, the truth, the truth. So Deutero-Isaiah condemns all representations of God, okay? The, the true God cannot be represented by an image because nothing in creation is even remotely like him. The famous verse in Deutero-Isaiah is Isaiah 40, verse 18. To whom then will you liken God? What likeness will you compare him unto? So this whole idea of, of God entering the world and becoming... Uh, man who is the sort of literal image of god so that yeah. people bow down and worship him as god and call him their savior this is explicitly condemned in isaiah now i don't but want to
0: coming back to i uh, coming back to the Sur 112 the la- the fourth verse there it says and in english there is and there is nothing like unto him there's nothing comparable to him exactly the same sentiment echoed in the quran
1: that is isianic theology to its core yes. exactly yes yeah yes. Yes. The Christian argument is this, though. They'll say that w- when Jews worshiped Jesus, and of course they didn't really worship him, this is their claim. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, when, when certain Jews worship Jesus, according to them, these Jews were not committing idolatry because the person of the Son, who is essentially God, uh, had entered into the carness, the flesh of Jesus. He's an incarnation. So they were worshiping that divine nature, not the fleshy body. This is the Christian claim. The problem with this Christian claim is that it is exactly the Hindu claim. So Hindus believe that their Murtis, right, their yeah, idols, yeah. contain the real presence mm. of the singular divine, that they are infused with the very essence of Brahman himself, wow. as does everything else in the world. So Hindus will say, we're not worshipping statues of clay and wood and stone. Everything is Brahman. In other words, in Hinduism, because of its pantheism, any object in the world is worthy of worship. In a similar way, Christians say, we're not worshiping the flesh and blood of Jesus. Due to hypostatic union, Jesus is you know one person with two natures, one human, one divine. We're worshiping the divine nature. Judaism, however, teaches, based upon texts like Deutero-Isaiah, and Jesus, peace be upon him, was a rabbi, lest we forget, uh, it's very simple, and Islam confirms this. Nothing in the world was ever worthy of worship, and nothing in the world will ever be worthy of worship. Period. We don't need a we don't need a Ph.D. for this. Does this mean that 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 God is remote and impersonal and has nothing to do with creation? No. The reality of God's relationship to the world is mysterious. It's you know above our pay grade, as they say. God is close to his creation in knowledge, in mercy, in wrath. And we stop here. What we do know, without a doubt, is that nothing in the world is worthy of worship. Nothing that exists or did exist in the created world is worthy of worship. This is Isianic and Quranic and Jewish uh, theology. This is exactly what makes the theology of the true prophets unique. So, so any human being who claims to be God and worthy of worship has lied according to the Torah. God is not a man that he should lie. Lo ish el numbers 23, 19. Okay, now now here's something very interesting. There is some difference of opinion among the classical Jewish exegetes as to the very peshat of the text of Isaiah 42 with respect to the servant's identity. So there's, there's no difference of opinion uh, as to its essential theology, but there's difference of opinion as to who the chapter is referring to in its immediate historical context. Okay, And, and modern Jewish apologists often make it seem as though there's a total consensus about this. It's Israel. End of story. But, but this is not accurate. Uh, ibn ezra points this out he says that the majority of exegetes, right so like the jumhur as it were uh, they say that the servant of isaiah 42 1 through 9 the first servant song is right. pious israel or the pious remnant of israel that's the right. majority ibn ezra himself however does not totally take this position he believes the servant to be yeshayahu ben Amut, the the prophet isaiah himself who represents sort of the righteous remnant, as you you can say. Uh, Other exegetes, he mentions, say that the servant is Cyrus. And this is very interesting. It's interesting because this tells us that some Jewish authorities argued that the servant of Isaiah 42 was not an Israelite. Not an Israelite based upon what? The plain sense of Isaiah 42. And I'll show you why shortly, uh, inshallah, when we get to the actual Pesuchim, when we get to the actual verses. This is an important point because when Muslims propose that the servant of Isaiah 42 is the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, anti-Muslim polemicists, they often scoff and moan and and gnash their teeth and stomp their feet, and they say, why would God praise a non-Jew, this is ridiculous. And then they rain down all kinds of abuses and insults upon the Prophet. You know, one of my teachers said their, their similitude is like dogs barking at the moon, right? <laughs> their barking does not diminish the beauty of the moon, one iota. The prophet of Islam is Muhammad, the most praised of humanity. God exalted him. Nobody can debase him. And those who insult him are, is just a complete waste of time. I mean, never, never mind the fact that in Deutero-Isaiah, God refers to Abraham, a, a non-Jew, as my friend. Never mind the fact that according to uh, Isaiah 45 in Deutero-Isaiah, God calls Cyrus, his Messiah, Cyrus, the Melech Paras, melech ulfaris, the King of Persia, ko amar adonai li <laughs> and the Lord said to his Messiah, to Cyrus. What is going on here with with Deutero-Isaiah? I think this is just amazing. Deutero-Isaiah to me is just, is really amazing. You know, it's by far my favorite part of of the Tanakh. You see, one of the major themes of Deutero-Isaiah, in addition to its staunch monotheism, is God's power, greatness, uniqueness, sovereignty, and otherness. Okay? One of the great statements of of Deuteronomy Isaiah 55, 8. Indeed, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways, says the Lord. God does whatever he wants, okay? He's in absolute control of the world. He will not contradict himself, but he may subvert our expectations as a demonstration of his absolute volition, omnipotence, and wisdom. You know, as the Quran says, God chooses whomever he wills. God will never be questioned for what he does. We will be questioned for what we do. God chose Cyrus. He called him his Messiah and subdued nations through him. God spoke to Cyrus, according to Isaiah. He said to him, I am the Lord, and there is none else beside me. There is no God. I strengthened you, meaning Cyrus, even though you never knew me. Ibn Ezra, he says, the meaning of you never knew me, in Hebrew, is you never worshipped me. Why did God do that? Because God does whatever he wants, consistent within his own nature and word. In Isaiah 48, 14, in Deuteronomy, Isaiah, God says he loves Cyrus. I love him. In Isaiah 41-2, Cyrus is called tzedek, a righteous man. That's the word for saint also. In, in Ezra 1-2, Cyrus is quoted as saying, Every kingdom of the earth has been given to me by the Lord God of heaven. Cyrus acknowledged that the God of the Jews was God. He was a believer, okay, and more than this. uh, As I said, God spoke to him. He's apparently a Gentile prophet or prophetic figure. You know, the Greeks hated the Persians. You know, yet Herodotus had nothing but praise for Cyrus. I mean, he wrote called Cyrus the Great.
0: That's what he's called. Yeah. Yeah, Cyrus the great
1: I mean he wrote in, in in the histories he said that Cyrus's birth was preceded by portentous dreams and that he emerged as quote the greatest and best liked man uh, of his generation that's mm-hmm. what God did his ways are mysterious and sometimes the wisdom escapes us but Isaiah teaches us that we must trust God and submit to his decisions mm-hmm. and by the way, many exegetes of the Quran believe that Qarnayn, this ruler who's mentioned in Surah 18 of the Quran is called the Dur Many exegetes believe this is Cyrus. There's a compelling argument to be made uh, in this regard, especially since Dur Qurnayn appears in Surah 18. One of the major overarching themes of Surah 17, 18, and 19, these three surahs, is servitude, ubudiyah, to God. These are the you know, servant surahs of the Quran, if you will. And in these in these surahs, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and the Prophet Isa, alayhi salam, the Prophet Jesus, peace be upon him, are explicitly called servants of God. And this is this is a high honor in the Quran, as well as in the book of Isaiah, to be called a servant of God. Abdullah. It's a dignified title. And then at the end of surah 19. We have this beautiful ayah, in kullu man fis samawati wal ardi illa atar rahmani abda. There is nothing in the heavens and the earth that does not approach the most compassionate except as a servant. So so here's my opinion. Let me get this out of the way just for full disclosure. Yeah. Okay. In my view, the servant song of Isaiah 42 verses 1 to 9 at yeah. the level of its peshat, its immediate historical reference, is a description of cyrus so i agree with the, the jewish authorities that take this position cyrus is the one intended by the plain sense of the text but at the level of the midrash i believe that it is a description and prophecy of the prophet muhammad sallallahu cyrus the righteous beloved of god powerful gentile prophetic figure is a type of the prophet muhammad and the prophet muhammad is the one whom the servant song indicates at the second level of its text cyrus is the type the prophet muhammad is the anti-type now there's one last thing i want to mention before we finally look at the verses of isaiah 42 when i say that the prophet muhammad is described at the second level of the text i do not mean that it's um vague allegory or some like fuzzy esoteric or cryptic description. What I'm saying is that the very words of Isaiah 42, in their most apparent meanings, describe the Prophet Muhammad, peace be yeah. upon him. Okay. So so this is a typological <laughs> reading. It's not a figurative reading, because the author of Deutero Isaiah rarely uses figurative language in Isaiah 42. Elsewhere he does more abundantly, but not really in chapter 42. So this is not like what many Christian apologists do with the Tanakh or what the Shia do with the Quran. Again, I mean no disrespect. I'm speaking here as a Sunni Muslim. I'm not trying to disrespect anyone's uh, religion. I have Christian friends and colleagues. They are brilliant and beautiful people. I absolutely respect them. uh, And I mean that sincerely. Uh, Regarding the Shia, I have Shia family members. My parents are Shia, okay? Full full disclosure. Uh, So I'm not going out of my way to disrespect my parents, uh, God forbid. I'm mentioning this because I think it's important that I draw a distinction between what I will do with Isaiah 42 and what Christians do with the Tanakh or what the Shia do with the Quran. And it's interesting that both of these groups have essentially the same method. It tends to be very esoteric and highly figurative. And the reason is because both of these groups believe in doctrines that are not explicitly found in their primary texts, okay? The Tanakh and Quran respectively. This is my opinion. The death and resurrection of a a savior man-god and the Trinity in the case of Christianity. And the immaculate imamate in the case of, of Shiaism. So they have to resort to esoteric and, and highly figurative, really eisegesis, right? For example, uh, Ali al-Qummi, a famous Shi'i exegete, he says in his tafsir, uh, that when the Quran says, mm-hmm. by, by the sun and its light, by the moon when it follows it, uh, and by the day when it unveils it, and by and by the night as it uh, as it conceals it. He he says that the sun is the prophet, the moon is Ali, the day is, I think, the Mehdi, who is in occultation. And the knight are those leaders who usurped authority from the prophet's household. So it was very cryptic. With respect to Christianity, the author of the Gospel of John thought that the serpent of brass uh, that Moses made and attached to a pole that healed the Israelites who looked at it, this is in Numbers 21, he thought that the serpent symbolized Jesus on the cross. You know, look up at Jesus attached to the cross and be healed the serpent symbolized jesus the synoptics s- say nothing like this and then john has jesus say the famous john 3:16 again missing from the synoptic uh,
0: well, another example from isaiah of course is the famous story uh, i think it's uh, isaiah 9 where unto us a child is born uh, and and this is a a, a child who is born uh, a contemporary of the prophet himself prophet isaiah um, the identity of the child, could it be you know, the son of the king, whatever. But the child is already born, past tense in the Hebrew, and yet it's decontextualized in the Christian tradition in the New Testament, obviously, to refer to someone many, many centuries who, who, to come in the future. Uh, and that's a yeah. decontextualized reading of something that in its context clearly refers to someone else, a contemporary of the prophet himself.
1: Yeah. Uh, here a Christian apologist would say, or an exegete would say, if they're using the methodology of classical Judaism, they'll say, well, well, that's the peshat of the text. It's referring to Hezekiah. But the Midrash is pointing to the Messiah. But again, it has to work theologically, right? So a child is born who shall be, call, um, who shall be called mighty God, um, everlasting father, right? So yeah, Christians so do not be Jesus.
0: You. Jesus' that, son Jesus. is not the father. That's a, as a heresy. It's passion, a heresy.
1: Or, that, or yeah, that's, it's not a Trinitarianism that's modalism so that would be a her- so they they you can't really use that right but but another example is you know john the baptist referring to jesus and john as the lamb of god right behold the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world paul says in 1 corinthians that christ was our passover lamb and, and there are similar things in hebrews you know it's interesting in the synoptics john the baptist is all about repentance it's about teshuva that's judaism repent repent the kingdom of god is at hand In the Gospel of John, however, it's behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not only does this contradict the Baptist's own message in the synoptics, but it's clearly antithetical to Judaism, which does not teach that the Passover lamb literally takes your sins. No other human or animal can take your sin. True forgiveness is through repentance, and of course the entire city of Nineveh Was forgiven without a a single sacrifice but to speak back to your point they can because i'm i'm going to look at isaiah 42 through that lens of of peshat and midrash and christians do that as well with isaiah 9 and 11 and other places as well but i would argue that their midrash is violating the plain sense of the text in almost every single instance okay so i think i think we're ready to look at isaiah uh, inshallah and by the way, generally the Muslim will have a slight advantage over the Christian in in philological uh, studies of the Bible because Arabic and Hebrew are are sister Semitic languages, and you, you'll yeah. see what I mean by that. So Isaiah chapter forty two verse one. I've got my Colin
0: Study Bible here, Great. <laughs> the,
1: revised, yes, that's the,
0: uh, the new Revised Standard Version, which I do recommend, folks, is the best scholarly translation in English uh, to get your hands on if you don't have a copy. If you can't read the Hebrew, of course, but Dr. Ali Attai can read the Hebrew and so has a great advantage.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, and I encourage people to engage in, in linguistic studies, learn original languages. It's going to open up uh, incredible worlds of knowledge. So 42.1 begins, Hain abdi. Hain abdi. Behold, my servant, my edhed. the Arabic cognate is abd. same exact letters. The Arabic translation says, who are the Abdi? And then in Hebrew it says "ithmachbol," whom I hold up or support. So God both exalts or raises the rank of this servant, as well as protects this servant, strengthening this servant with His help. So the servant has exaltation and protection. I would say he has rifa' and isma. Right in the Quran, God says to the Prophet Muhammad, laka "We have exalted your remembrance." He says to the Prophet, Wallahu ya'simuka nas." God will protect you from the people. Okay. And of course, after the titles of Rasul and Nabi, Messenger and Prophet, the Prophet Muhammad is called Abd in the Quran. He is the Abd of God, the servant of God. More than any other Prophet, he's called this eight times. In second place is Jesus, peace be upon him, four times. The Prophet Muhammad is the quintessential servant of God. Okay. And then it continues, Bihari <clears> Ratsa <throat> Nafshi. My chosen one, in whom my soul, my nefesh, is pleased. The word nefesh in biblical Hebrew, the Arabic cognate, is nafs. The word nefesh has several meanings. It could mean breath or soul or mind or simply the self. The servant is pleasing to God's nefesh, to his self. Uh, You might say that God loves this servant. And the Hebrew word for pleased is ratsa, which is cognate to radia in Arabic, same letters. Like we would say, radiyallahu anhu, may God be pleased with him. So this servant has God's rida or ridwan upon him, his pleasure. The Quran describes the prophet and his companions by saying, yabtahuna min allahi wa ridwana. They constantly seek the grace and pleasure of God, God's ridwan. Also, one of the most well-known titles of the Prophet Muhammad in the Islamic tradition is the chosen one or the elect one. Al-Mustafa, Al-Mujtaba, Al-Mukhtar, all of these mean the chosen one. In fact, according to Wilhelm Gessinius, okay, the famous lexicon, Gesenius's Hebrew uh, Chalde lexicon to the Old Testament, uh, the Hebrew word bakhir, which is used here in Isaiah 42.1, chosen one, he says it's linguistically related to the Arabic Muhtar, which is the title of the Prophet in the Islamic tradition. They have the Khet and the Resh in common, the Ha and the Ra. Okay. So 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 far we have in Arabic, Huwa the Abdi. So it, it's it almost sounds like a qasida. It sounds like an ode <laughs> eulogizing the Prophet Muhammad. Verse 1 continues, it says, Nathati ruhi I have put my spirit upon him. Okay, Ibn Ezra says, this means, ruach navu'ah, ruh nabawi, a prophetic spirit, a spirit of prophecy. This edhed is a prophet, okay? The word ruach here has, has nothing to do with the Christian notion of the Holy Spirit as being the third hypostasis of a triune godhead who shares an usia with two other hypostases these are the strange formulations of third and fourth century christian theologians so a trinitarian importation upon isaiah 42 is inappropriate it's anachronistic it violates the peshat okay can't do it no this ruach adonai this this is a spirit of prophecy and the quran says this is in chapter 16, verse 102 of the Quran. Say the spirit of holiness from your Lord, i.e., a prophetic spirit, is revealing it, i.e., the Quran in truth. Verse 1 concludes: Mishpat Mishpat is usually translated as justice, okay, because. It's related to the word shofate, which means a judge, like a hakim. The book of judges is called shuftim. But Jisinius, he mentions that mishpat is closer in this context to divine law or divine religion. And he actually gives the Arabic word deen as being the closest in meaning to the Hebrew. Wow. Okay. So Mishpat legoyim yotsi. To the Gentiles, he will cause to come out. The verb is he feel, it's causative. We can say, he will bring deen to the Ummiyin, the Gentiles. Ummiyin means Gentiles. He will bring divine religion to the Gentiles. And we have confirmation in the Quran, 61.9 of the Quran, هو He, He it is, God is the one. Who sent his messenger with guidance and the religion of truth, the Mishpat, who baatha fil rasulan. That's 62.9 of the Quran. He it is who sent his messenger, who it, he it is, who sent among the Gentiles a messenger. And of course, you have the famous verse 7157. <laughs> those who follow the messenger, the Gentile prophet who is mentioned in the Torah and in the gospel. So that's verse one. Okay. Verse two, it says, <speaking in Hebrew> He shall not cry out nor lift up nor cause his voice to be heard in the streets, meaning outdoors. Ibn Ezra says, This was, so that people would, would flock to him and not flee from him, right? Hmm. In the Qur'an, we have this beautiful verse in the Qur'an where God says to the Prophet, فَبِمَا رَحْمَةٍ مِّنَ اللَّهِ لِنْتَلَهُمْ وَلَوْ كُنْتَ So he says, it is part of the mercy of God that you have a gentle disposition. If you would have been harsh or hard-hearted then people would have fled from your presence. That's chapter three, verse 159 of the Quran. Of course, our mother Aisha, radiyallahu Anha, the wife of the Prophet, peace be upon him, she said, describing the Prophet, Walla Sahaban fil He will not, he did not shout in the marketplace, right? He would not raise his voice in the streets. This is a perfect description of the Prophet Muhammad. Verse number three elaborates, A bruised reed he shall not break, nor a smoldering wick will he put out. The meaning here, according to Ibn Ezra, is that this servant, this Evid, this prophet, this nevi, has a gentle disposition. Okay, Rashi said that the reed and the wick uh, uh the Khanai and the Pishta represent the meek and the poor. The meek and the poor will be attracted to his message. Now, the critic of Islam at this point is probably you know wringing his hands and thinking, but Muhammad was a warrior. You know, these people they don't know anything about the Sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. They don't know anything about Sahlul Khuluq, Layinul Janib, the Prophet is described, easygoing gentle in his disposition. This is everywhere in the hadith. You know, people don't study. That's number one. And number two, if the critique is coming from a a Jewish or Christian apologist, then they're applying a double standard. You know, and you've pointed this out in the past. And and Numbers chapter 12, Moses, who is described as meek and humble, it says the meekest of all people on the earth. Numbers chapter 12. Yet Moses ordered 3,000 people killed in one day. In Exodus thirty-two, and that's a bloodbath.
0: Just, gonna, just talking about, just, just talking about the, the the meekness applying to Jesus as passage. Well, if you look at the last book of the Christian Bible, the Book of Revelation, you have Jesus no more Mister Nice Guy. He slaughters his enemies on an industrial global scale. So he's not very gentle uh, on occasions.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. that, that's also true. And if you if you look at uh, our scholars, they've estimated about five hundred. Uh, enemy casualties in the 23 years of the prophet muhammad's ministry 700 men all men on the battlefield
0: is that just 700 wow yeah
1: the bani Qurayda incident is highly disputed in numbers 31 it was the same moses according to numbers who scolded the israelites for not slaughtering all of the midianite women in addition to the men he complained why did you leave the women alive Where does the prophet Muhammad order the slaughter of women? Where does he order the slaughter of children? There were hypocrites in Medina pretending to be companions, and the prophet knew who they were, and he did not order even them to be killed. Yet Moses is a true prophet, and Muhammad is false because he was a warrior. I mean, the logic is just astounding. It's out of this world. You know, in 2 Kings, we're told that four little children made fun of the prophet Elisha's bald spot, right? This is in second Kings. They yeah. were calling him baldy in Hebrew. They were saying to him, uh, which means like, get going baldy. These were little children. What did Elisha do? This is a true prophet and Nevi a Emet, Nevi according to the Bible. Yeah. He cursed them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the wilderness and ripped apart 42 children. Rip
0: them apart. Imagine the carnage. This story, if you haven't heard of this story before, you might think that Dr. Ali Atai is making this up. I assure (laughs) you he's not. This is actually in the Jewish Bible. A prophet was called Baldy. I mean, seriously, this is exactly what happened. You can go read it for yourself. And retribution was swift on on these kids. It's all there, I'm afraid.
1: Yeah, I've I've been accused of making things up too. I've I've, I've quoted stories and... (laughs) Oh, what, what what version is that? I so said, this is in every version. You know, compare that to Ta'if. At Ta'if, the Prophet ﷺ went to Ta'if and slaves and children stoned him out of the city and he prayed for them. Yet Elisha is a true prophet, but the Prophet Muhammad who defended his city from invading hordes of pagans uh, who had seized the Muslims' possessions, who defended his city from Bedouin mercenaries who were hell-bent on plunder and pillage, who defended his city from treasonous Jews from within the city who plotted against him. He was a violent warrior, and therefore he's not a prophet. This is just astounding. But anyway, verse 3 ends by saying, yotzi mishpat. extraordinary statement. He will bring forth justice for truth, which is a kind of a weird translation. For the sake of truth, he shall bring deen, the, the divine religion, or it can be translated He shall bring the true religion. He shall bring the true religion, the deen al-haq. And and Christian exegetes and apologists, they they say this is the Christian Jesus bringing Trinitarian Christianity. That's their opinion. I obviously disagree, and I've already explained why. There is no compelling reason to believe that Jesus is God. A prophet, yes, but God, no. Verse number four. He says, He shall not grow dim or be bruised until he has established the true religion on the earth. And Ibn Ezra, he says the prophet of Isaiah 42, will not fail in his mission. He will not be overcome by any violence of man. Now, according to Christian theology, Jesus' mission was to die for our sins by getting himself killed. Uh, at the hands of, of men, God becoming a human sacrifice. Uh, so we have to ask, with respect, is this mishpat ba'aretz? Is this deenul haq fil ard? Is this the true religion of God on earth? I would respectfully disagree. The, the establishment of the true religion on earth is the Prophet Muhammad refining and restoring the true law of Moses and reestablishing true Abrahamic Tawheed, Monotheism, as well as vindicating Jesus Christ, peace be upon him, by telling the, the world the truth about him, that Jesus was not a false prophet, nor was he a divine being. Both of these positions are ghulu, they're, they're extremism. The Quran says in the context of its Christology, Ya Ahl al Kitab, O Jews and Christians, La Taghlu dinikum. Don't be extremists in your religions. This is Mishpat Ba'arit this is fil ard. and you see how jesus peace be upon him is a key component of this so i am not saying that jesus has nothing to do with isaiah 42. no he has he, he plays a major role the prophet of isaiah 42 who is the prophet muhammad will tell the world the truth about jesus and jesus is vindicated by this prophet okay this is what establishes the the mishpat uh, uh, upon the, uh, the the true religion upon the earth. Now, verse four concludes. Ul So, and the islands or coastlands shall await his teaching. Okay, so uh, the word for his teaching here is torato, which literally means his Torah. Now, Torah just means teaching or instruction. Okay. When the Tanakh uses the word Torah, it is not necessarily referring to the exact Torah that was given to Moses on Sinai. How do we know that? Well, in Genesis 26.5, we're told that Abraham kept the Torah of God. Abraham. So this was 500 years prior to Sinai. What that means is Abraham kept God's teachings, right? The law of God for that time. Uh, And now Deutero-Isaiah is saying that the teachings of this future prophet described in Isaiah 42 will reach the islands. In other words, it'll be far-reaching, okay? But also in a real sense, I mean, over 60% of Malaysia is Muslim, and there are over 200 million Muslims in Indonesia. That's more than Pakistan, India, Egypt, Saudi, Turkey, Morocco. However, a Christian apologist, okay, may interject here, and say this. He'll say, no, 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 the Iyim in the Tanakh that's mentioned here is a reference to the coastlands of the Mediterranean Sea. Okay, that's what he'll say. Okay, fine, I'll accept that. There there are 21 countries that have coastlines on the Mediterranean Sea, and they are Albania, Algeria, Bosnia, Croatia, uh, Cyprus, Egypt, France, Greece, Palestine, Italy, Lebanon, Libya, Malta, Monaco, Montenegro, uh, Morocco, Slovenia, Spain, Syria, Tunisia, and Turkey, more than half of those countries are Muslim majority. And there are large minority populations of Muslims and the ones that are not majority. Some of them used to be Muslim countries that are no longer Muslim. So the fact is the dominant religious teachings practiced by these coastlands These iyim are the teachings of the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. This fulfillment of prophecy, any way you slice it, as it were. Verse number five, I'll say it in English. Thus thus, uh, said God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what it brings forth, who gave neshama, breath, to the am, the people upon it, and gave ruach, life, to those who walk upon it, Verse 6, and adonai qaratika bit I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. Okay, so it's almost like an oath formula here. Just some interesting tidbits about verse 6, the beginning of the verse. The verb qaratika, I have called you, is actually related to the word iqra, the first word of revelation given to the Prophet Muhammad in the Qur'an, which is also related to this word. Also, the word sadaq is related, uh, uh, righteousness is related to the Prophet's pre Islamic title among his tribes, as sadiqul Amin. Now, verse six uh, continues, the uh, the itzarka, I will hold you by the hand and watch over you. So, I will hold you by the hand, meaning I will guide you, I will protect you. Okay, the, the Hebrew verb natsar is related to the Arabic nasara, to give victory. Of course, God says to the uh, Prophet in the Qur'an yansurak Allahu nasran aziza," That God may aid you with a mighty victory So what does this mean in Isaiah? It means that this Prophet will be a colossal success And of course he was By the 6th century of the Common Era The vast majority of the followers of Jesus Christ Peace be upon him Were full-blown Trinitarians Worshipping three persons as God, the second of which became a human being, according to them. Europe was sunk in the Dark Ages. The, the two most powerful empires in the world were Byzantium and the Sassanids, both of which were steeped in idolatry. You know, the Prophet Muhammad died in 632 CE, and within 80 years of his death, his monotheistic teaching, the, the, the Tawheed of the Qur'an and Sunnah stretched from Spain to China, and of course, today there are Muslims living in every country in the world, except for the Vatican. The Prophet Muhammad did what Israel could not. This is a very important point. I'm going to come back to this. The Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, he did what Israel could not. Verse 6 concludes. It says, this very important verse. Brit Am, the Orgoyim. Very important yet it has been notoriously difficult to understand now christians tend to render the first part along the lines of i will give you as a covenant for the people right i will give you as a covenant that god gave jesus christ as the new covenant that christ is the covenant you know god gave him in the sense that he sacrificed him uh, for our sins god sacrificed himself essentially You know, in in Neo-Babylonian religion, you have these stories of of gods trying to kill their children and their parents. Uh, Yet Christian exegetes maintain that the author of Deutero-Isaiah, sitting in Neo-Babylon and surrounded by all of this idolatry and all of these, you know, these are myths of gods wanting to kill their children. They believe that the author of Isaiah 42 was predicting exactly that that God would sacrifice his own son one day. Uh, again, I respectfully disagree. The best translation of this, am that I've seen of this part of the verse six, uh, is in, the, in the, what's known as the complete Jewish Bible. And this is what it says. And I made you for a people's covenant. So there's a Lamed here. I made you for a people's covenant for a light to nations in other words and and rashi mentions this the meaning is god is saying to this prophet this servant you were created for this purpose i created you in order for me to establish a people's covenant and to enlighten the nations now christian apologists will point out that when the word am people is mentioned in juxtaposition to gentiles goyim like what like here the former refers to israel uh, so, so their claim is that when am was used in the previous verse it referred to the whole of humanity you know when it said that god gave breath to the people on, on the earth but here in verse six it's restricted to israel i have no problem with that okay god god raised the prophet muhammad in order to fulfill his promise to the Israelites of sending the prophet of Isaiah 42. In fact, the Quran seems to refer to this when God says, "O children of Israel, remember my blessing, which I bestowed upon you and fulfill my covenant. That's chapter two, verse 40. And Imam al-Qurtubi, he said that this means that Israel must now believe in the prophet Muhammad who is predicted in their scriptures. God fulfilled his promise. Now Israel must believe in him, in the Prophet, and obey him. Okay, and not only is the Prophet Muhammad's message for the Israelites, as the verse in Isaiah indicates, it is a light to all other nations. This iconic verse in the Quran, 21107, which is in a surah called al anbiya Nabim, the Prophet's we did not send you O muhammad except as a mercy to all the worlds there's many ayat we have sent from god a light and a clarifying book what is the clarifying book the quran what is this light the prophet he's called light just as he's called here in isaiah and not only is the prophet's message as we said for the israelites it's for the whole world so remember Remember something, the, the peshat of Isaiah 42, according to an opinion of Jewish commentators mentioned by Ibn Ezra, is a description of Cyrus, the king of Persia. Now, the reason why these Jewish commentators identified Cyrus as the servant of Isaiah 42 in its immediate context is because they understood the phrase goyim," a light of Gentiles, a light of nations to mean a light from the Gentiles, that this servant is a Gentile. This becomes crystal clear when we look at the second servant song. So Isaiah 49 verses five and six, and I know I'm I'm jumping around a little bit, I apologize, but if we can quickly look at Isaiah 49, five and six, and we'll come back to 42. Isaiah 49, five, who is the speaker? It says, and now the Lord, who formed me from the womb as a servant to him, said to bring Jacob back to him. He's saying the Lord told him to bring Jacob, that's Israel, back to God. The servant is not Jacob. The servant was told by God to bring Jacob back to God. And it continues, and Israel shall be gathered to him, and I will be honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my, and my God is my strength. Now verse six, and he said, Is it too little that you should be my servant? In other words, do people think that it's inappropriate for you to be my servant? To establish the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the besieged of Israel. Ibn Ezra says to bring Israel back to their land by your word. So who brought Israel back to their land by his word, by his decree? The Lord is clearly talking to Cyrus here in in Isaiah 49. But now listen. But I will make you a light of nations, or goyim. This is the same phrase used in Isaiah forty-two six, so that my salvation shall be unto the end of the earth. So what I'm saying here is that in Isaiah forty-nine five and six, Cyrus is explicitly called or goyim, a light of Gentiles, because he was a Gentile. The same construct phrase is used in forty-two. 6. The first servant song about the prophet Muhammad at the level of the Midrash. So Cyrus, a gentile, is called a light of nations or The Navi and Evid of Isaiah 42 at the level of Midrash will mirror Cyrus in this regard. He will be a gentile prophet, a Nabi Ummi, who will bring disobedient Israel back from spiritual exile and God through him will establish a new covenant with Israel. And I encourage people to read Quran 157 and 158. All right, those two verses, those iconic verses that establish that the prophet, peace be upon him, is mentioned in the Torah and the gospel. The themes of those two ayat are very Isianic. Okay, uh, now going back to Isaiah 42. Okay, 42.7. To open the eyes of the blind, uh, and I'll I'll bypass some of the Hebrew here because uh, it's getting a little too late here. I don't want to go forever. Uh, To open the eyes of the blind, to free the captives from prison, and releasing those who sit in dark dungeons. So we see how this applies to Cyrus in the immediate reference. Ibn Ibn Ezra points that out. But at the level of Midrash, the Prophet Muhammad's message gave sight to the spiritually blind. It freed people from the prisons of their passions. Christians will say, no, 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 no. This refers to Jesus giving sight to the physically blind. However, when we keep reading Isaiah 42, we will see that it actually means the spiritually blind, the blindness of the heart, as Ibn Ezra says. That becomes clear later on. We'll get to that verse. Verse 8, he says, I am the Lord, I am yod hey vav hey. the tetragrammaton. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor share my praise with carved idols. Now, a critic will say here, but the name of God in the Quran is Allah. It's not Yahweh. So here's my response to this. The, the word Yahweh is a human invention. In the Tanakh, the name of God is represented by four letters, yad He vav He. It's called the Tetragrammaton, the Shem HaForash. Nobody knows how to pronounce these letters or what they really mean. The, the words Yahweh or Jehovah are fabrications of the Tetragrammaton that are not scriptural. However, sometimes in the Tanakh, the Tetragrammaton is abbreviated as Hu or Ho in Hebrew with the two middle letters, the He and the Waw, the He and the Vav. These are the, the, the prominent letters of the tetragrammaton. For example, and I mentioned this last time as well, the name Joshua, Yehoshua, the Lord is salvation. He and Vav, Yehoshua. The name Elijah, Eliyahu, my God is the Lord. Who He and Vav. The Quran says, Allahu la ilaha illa hu, God, there is no God but who, the ha and the wow, same letters. قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدٌ right? Say, huwa is God, the one and only. So this is confirmed in the Qur'an. You know, it's, it's a bit strange to me that Christians claim that Emmanuel, mentioned in, in Isaiah seven fourteen, is a prophecy of Jesus. This is what Matthew says. But Jesus' name was not Emmanuel. It was Jesus. The names Emmanuel and Jesus have nothing in common. The response would be, well, the meaning of Emmanuel applies to Jesus. Okay, so what is the meaning of the Tetragrammaton? Well, nobody knows definitively, but the dominant opinion is that it probably has something, something to do with eternality, that God is. Okay, fine. That meaning is also in the Qur'an. Okay, Allahu la ilaha illahu al hayyul qayyum. That's the first sentence of ayatul kursi, the verse of the throne, chapter 2, verse 255. God, there is no God but who, he, the living, al hayy, the living, meaning the eternal, the self subsisting. So in that first line, you have the meaning of al ismul a'zam hashem Hamafurash So the tetragrammaton is confirmed in the Quran. Both in its articulation as well as in its meaning. <laughs> okay. And obviously, that's, we can talk about that later. That's a different topic. But this is a very common trope, right? The, uh, Allah is not the Tetragrammaton. Uh, uh, the name of God is Yahweh. The, the word Yahweh does not appear anywhere in the Bible. You've added these vowels. Uh, it interesting that,
0: that Christians. I, I, I agree. I hear this all the time. But of course, the word Yahweh is never mentioned in the New Testament either. It's not as if the Gospels yeah. have this word around. Uh, Paul never mentions the word Yahweh. Or anyone else? So yeah. it's really absent from the New Testament.
1: Yeah. So we'll use the same. You know, the Christian again. The Christian will say Emmanuel is not the name of Jesus. Oh, that's what his name means. Okay, then fine. What does mm-hmm. Yahweh mean? It probably means Yihveh, which means to be. It's the present tense verb of 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 the of the verb which means to be meaning god is uh, eternal and that meaning is also found uh, in the quran but anyway now verse 9 of isaiah 42 verse 9 is very important because this represents a sort of pivot in the chapter it says behold the former things have come to pass in other words what i said in the past came true and now i will prophecy again some new things and i will tell them before they happen so now the author of deutero isaiah will be speaking explicitly about future events okay so i said that usually a prophet speaks to his own generation unless he explicitly states that he's going to be speaking to future generations so from verse 10 until the end of the chapter i believe the prophet muhammad is now being described at the primary level of the text, no longer at the level of Midrash. He is no longer the mirror image of Cyrus. Now he is the image itself. And how does it begin? Shiru Adonai shir Chadash. Sing unto the Lord a new song. A shir in Hebrew is a lyrical hymn that praises God. This is the only appearance of the phrase new song in Isaiah. It does occur in the Psalms. But the Psalms were written by totally different authors in a different country, separated by hundreds of years. So just because another author you know, used the same two-word phrase in another book of the Tanakh does not mean that it's identical in meaning. The Bible, as we said, is a compendium. It's an anthology, as you said. It's a library. It has multiple authors, and multiple authors often use the same words to mean different things. So, this is going to be a new scripture that praises God, a new song unto the Lord and his praise to Hillah from the ends of the earth. You who sail to the sea and you, the creatures in it, you islands and coastlands and their inhabitants. We already established these Iyim, these coastlands. Verse 11, very important verse. Yisho midbar va'arav. Let the desert and cities lift up their voice. The cities, or sorry, the villages that Kedar inhabits, the inhabitants of let the inhabitants of Sela sing for joy. Let them shout from the tops of the mountains. Who is Kedar? Yeah. So according to Genesis. He is the second son of Ishmael, peace be upon him. Imam At-Tabari, he says in his Tariq that the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, is a direct descendant of Kedar. Others as well, Ibn Qayyim, al qurtubi others say this as well. Okay, This this is just something mass transmitted, as we would say, that the Prophet is a descendant of Ishmael. Nobody but a crazy revisionist uh, would dispute this. The, The Kedarites are Arabs. Okay, where did they live during the prophet's time? In the Hejaz, in the Arabian Peninsula, the Quraysh, the tribe of the prophet, were Kedarites. Jacinius says, "Quote the rabbins, meaning the rabbis, call all the Arabians universally by this name, whence Leshon Qaidar is used of the Arabic language." He's saying here that. In in Hebrew, the way to say Arabic is Leshon Qedar, Lisanu Qedar. That's how you say Arabic in Hebrew. You say the tongue of Kedar. Okay? Where is Sela? According sometimes translated the, the inhabitants of the rock, right? According to commentaries, biblical commentaries, Sela is Petra, which was the chief city of the Edomites, and then the Nabateans The Nabateans were named after Navayoth the firstborn son of Ishmael. So the Nabataeans and the Keterites, i.e. the Arabs, will lift up their voices and sing for joy when this Abdullah, when this Nabiul Ummi will arrive. The two major Arab capitals of the ancient world were Petra and Mecca. The former was the capital of the Nabataeans, and the latter was the capital of the Keterites. And incidentally, there is a mountain in Medina called Salah as well. There's also that, which is quite interesting, but that's just a little more, that's like the cherry on top. So, so we, have, we have a Gentile prophet who will bring true religion, the divine religion, to the coastlands, to the Nabataeans, to the Kedarites, whose character perfectly matches the prophet Muhammad, yet Christian apologists act like, so what? And, and then they say, that, that when God told the snake in Genesis that the seed of the woman will crush its head, they say, isn't it obvious this is Jesus? The seed of the woman will, will step on, the, on a snake's head? I, I don't see the obviousness of that at all. They further say that by crushing the head of the snake, Jesus destroyed Satan and thus sinned, but he clearly did not. Uh, from their own perspective, why? because Christian polemicists and apologists say that six hundred years later Satan deceived Muhammad into thinking he was a prophet of God and by doing so he was able to convince billions that Jesus was not God, not crucified, there's no Trinity, etc It seems like the snake is very much alive from their perspective now in isaiah 11 one uh when Isaiah predicts the branch, the netzer, shall grow out of the roots of Jesse, Matthew, Matthew, the author of the Gospel of Matthew, he distorts this, okay? And he quotes it as, he shall be called the Nazarene. Yeah. Okay? If Matthew was even referring to Isaiah 11.1, 1, okay? Matthew said this was spoken by the prophets. Which prophets were, he doesn't tell us. I'll afford him some goodwill and assume that he was referring to Isaiah 11.1 and did not just invent this verse out of whole cloth, which is what uh, Jewish apologists say, by the way. Yet Kedar, Selah, coastlands, Gentile prophet, divine religion to the Gentiles, a new song, a new law, coincidence. Head of the snake, obvious. Passover lamb, obvious. Brass serpent, obvious. Again, I do not intend to be disrespectful, but this is clear as day. This is clear as day. kitaba. The Quran says in chapter six, verse twenty those to whom we gave the scripture beforehand. They know the Prophet like they know one of their own sons. Those who ruin their own souls refuse to believe. In other words, the description of the Prophet in the Bible is so obvious that the people of the book recognize, recognition, the word is ma'rifah, ya'rifu. They recognize him as being almost like one of their own children. Like when you see a a group of ten children immediately you recognize your child. This is how clear these descriptions are of the Prophet. Verse number 12, let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. Here's a tidbit about this verse. Uh, The word for praise here is tahillah, which is related to the word tahleel in Arabic. What is tahleel? Tahleel is to say la ilaha illallah. When you say la ilaha illallah, there is no god but Allah. There is nothing worthy of worship except Allah. There is no ilah except Allah, Subhanahu wa Taala. This is called tahleel in Arabic. The most common praising of God in the coastlands today is La ilaha illallah. Verse twelve is fulfilled. Verse thirteen: The Lord shall go forth like a mighty man, Gibor, like a man of war, Ish mil He steers up zeal with a shout. He will raise the battle cry, and prevail over his enemies. This does not mean that the Lord will become a mighty man or a man of war. Why? Because God is not a man. Lo, That is a clear-cut text. We can't violate the clear-cut text. You know, Matthew quoted the first three verses of Isaiah 42 in chapter 12, verses 18 to 20 of Matthew. Matthew quoted Isaiah 42 in chapter 12. Okay, after Jesus healed a group of people, Matthew wrote that it might be fulfilled what was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold my servant whom I uphold, etc., until the end of verse three. But then Matthew added something extra. Okay, he falsified the text by adding a sentence at the end of verse three, giving the impression to his audience that this was also spoken by Isaiah, it was not. Matthew added, and in his name shall the Gentiles trust. Isaiah did not say this. This is a Mathian fabrication. I mean, it's nas. It's a fabrication of the text. Secondly, every Christian will agree that Jesus was not a man of war. He was He was not an ish malchamot, at least not in his first coming, as you pointed out. The second coming That's is a different story. It's <laughs> a different story, exactly. But the Johannan Jesus told Pilate, if my kingdom were of this world... My disciples would have fought, but my disciple, my kingdom is not from here. You know, Jordan Peterson, he famously said, Muhammad was a warrior, and I don't know what to do with that. Well, he needs to study. That's what he can do with that. So what does this mean then? The Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. Ibn Ezra says it means that God's divine decrees shall go forth, and those who oppose God's decrees revealed through this servant will be vanquished so it's a it's a figure of speech similar to deuteronomy 33 2 when it says Adonai misenei ba, the lord came from sinai Wait, the lord came from sinai no moses came from sinai with the lord's decrees okay verse 14 for a long time i have kept silent i have restrained myself but now like a woman in labor i will shout and pant for 600 years, God did not reveal a kitab, a sefer, a scripture, a revelation, right? God kept, you know, uh, silent during those six centuries while, while the darkness of ignorance and idolatry swept over uh, the world. Uh, the temple destroyed, uh, you know, the Jews scattered among the nations. Uh, the gospel of Jesus corrupted. Jesus himself deified and worshiped as God. Um, the light of true monotheism flickering in the wind and then what happened and then the prophet of the abrahamic restoration the prophet muhammad sallallahu wasallam wa karihal this verse 61 9 of the quran right is the essence of isaiah chapter 42 61:9. 9 it is he who has sent his messenger with guidance and the religion of truth in order for it to be uppermost over all religion, even though the idolaters might detest it. And we're going to get to uh, idolatry in Isaiah 42 in a minute here. So we're coming down to the end. Verse 15, I I will destroy mountains and hills, and all their grass I will dry out, and I will make rivers into islands, and I will dry up the pools. So Rashi says here, I will destroy mountains and hills. He, he, He says it means I will slay kings and rulers. In any case, God's servant of Isaiah 42 will oppose the evil and arrogant forces in the world and bring a theological, spiritual, moral, political upheaval and reformation. Okay, the world's going to change with him. Verse 16, and I will lead the blind on a road they did not know, in paths they did not know. I will lead them. I will make darkness into light before them and crooked paths into straight ones. These things I will do and I will not forsake them. I referred to this verse earlier when I mentioned the spiritually blind. Who are these spiritually blind? Well, first of all, to be spiritually blind in, in sacred text means not to understand something. Okay, the spiritual heart is the seat of emotion and intelligence. It is the mind. They are blind in their mind's eye. So who are they? These are the disobedient Israelites whom God will not forsake, God will raise up for them and all of humanity this great Aded, th- this great prophet, this great light of the Gentiles and bring them to the straight path, it says, Sirat mustaqim. and in doing so, take them out of darkness into light. Min you know, the Quran is confirming these, these ideas. They, they don't know this path. It's not the path of Moses. Is the path of Muhammad? Although the path of Muhammad confirms the path of Moses in many respects. Verse seventeen, check this one out. They shall not. Sorry, they shall turn back, greatly ashamed. Those who trust in graven images, who say to molten idols, ten ilohenu, you are our gods." You see, Jesus, peace be upon him, did not come to a people who were worshiping idols. He came to Jews. This prophet of Isaiah 42 will be a bulwark against idolatry. This prophet is idolatry's worst nightmare. This prophet will say, Hasbuna Allah, God is sufficient for us. This prophet will say, Qudhu Allahu ahad, God is, say he is God the one and only. This prophet will say, Fala tad'u ahada, Don't call on anyone with God. This prophet will say, shay'un, There's nothing like God whatsoever. This prophet will repudiate the Trinity. He'll repudiate the divinity of Christ. He will say, La ilaha illallah. There is no God save God save Allah. This prophet, and I think this is key. This prophet will do what Israel could not do, what Israel failed to do. He will bring the light of Tawheed, the light of al Echad, to the nations of the earth. And remember, I said one of the main themes of Deutero-Isaiah was God's sovereignty and otherness. He does whatever he wants. He's in absolute control over the world. He will not contradict himself, but he may subvert our expectations. No one can dictate to God. God is sovereign. During the Babylonian period, the Jews were expecting a Jewish king from David's line to save them just as Hezekiah had saved them during the Assyrian period. Hezekiah was a Davidic Messiah, meaning a Jewish king from David's line. But God chose Cyrus, a Gentile king, and called him his Messiah. The only mention of David in 2nd Isaiah is in Isaiah 55. Okay, It says that if the Israelites listen to God, that is obey God, then the quote, Sure, mercies of David will return as an everlasting covenant. In other words, God will bring back the Davidic kings. This seems to be how Deuteronomy, Isaiah understands Zedekiah being deposed and Second Samuel seven effectively being canceled. So the promise in Second Samuel seven that there will always be a king sitting on David's throne must have been contingent upon Israel's obedience. Now let's face reality. No Davidic king ever came and he will never come because David's line is lost. There is no way for anyone today to substantiate his claim as being a descendant of David. His line is lost. What does this mean? It means that ultimately Israel did not listen to God. So just as the Gentile Cyrus replaced the Jewish king messiahs, the Gentile prophet Muhammad and Nabiul Ummi replaced the Jewish prophets. Israel can still come into God's good graces by believing in and following the Prophet Muhammad. Remember, the verse said, I will not forsake them. They can still believe in the Prophet. What they cannot do is to continue to dictate to God no Davidic king is coming. That promise was a two way street, and Israel failed to live up to their end of it. Uh, the way to salvation now is through the gentile prophet he is sirat al Mustaqim. this is not to say that i deny the second coming of jesus i believe in the second coming of jesus but i don't believe jesus was a king messiah and he's certainly not a descendant of david but that's a different story now verse 18 you deaf ones listen it says listen that means obey and you blind ones look Havitu, look and see Rashi says this is Israel. Rashi says this, that God is speaking to Israel here. Oh, Israel, obey and understand what will happen. Verse 19, and this verse also has been notoriously difficult to interpret. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger that I send. Who is blind as he that is perfect, and blind as the Lord's servant. Some Jewish commentators say that servant here refers to Isaiah the prophet, that he is being called blind and deaf by other Jews in pious Jews who rejected his message and that God sort of defends him here by saying that Isaiah is rather perfect and the Lord's servant. How can he be blind and deaf? So God is basically quoting the rejecters and he's saying, you know, these are questions like who is blind but my servant or deaf as my messenger that I send? Who is blind as he that is perfect and blind as the Lord's servant? In other words, how dare you call my perfect servant, and messenger, blind and deaf. And in the next verse, God says, verse 20, you Jewish rejecters of this prophet, you are the blind and deaf ones, okay? And I agree with this in part. I agree that God is quoting the impious Jews who reject his message. But again, the prophet writer of Deutero-Isaiah in this passage is talking about the future. He says that explicitly. This is not Isaiah who is being called blind and deaf. It is this future Gentile prophet, this future abd of Allah who is being called blind and deaf by impious Jews who who will reject his message. It is as if God is saying, are you really calling my servant blind? Are you really calling my messenger deaf? Are you really calling the one who is my perfect servant blind? Now, here's something else about this verse. The servant here is called Evit, that's abd. He's called malak, which is rasul, messenger. He's also called perfect. The New American Standard Bible translates this as the one who is at peace with me. Now, the actual Hebrew word here is mushallam. Okay? Who is blind as he that is perfect? The word mushallam, okay, is a pu'al passive participle. Now, I don't want to get too much into this grammar stuff here, but this is an important point to make here. Wilhelm Jesenius defines this word in his famous Hebrew chaldee lexicon to the Old Testament. He says, to live friendly, Mushalem, the friend of God. And then he says it's Israel or Christ. He cites Isaiah 42, 19. Jusinius was a Christian, and Christians like Matthew believe Isaiah 42 is referring to Jesus. But then he tells us to compare this to he feel number two. In other words, this word as a pu'al participle, is similar in meaning to its hefeel or causative form, which he defines as to submit oneself by a treaty of peace. But then, then he says, the Hebrew hefeel form is equivalent to form four of selima in Arabic. Okay? And this he defines as, quote, to submit oneself to the dominion of another, of anyone, especially to commit one's affairs to God, followed by ila, whence Islam, obedience or submission to God and to Muhammad, hence true religion, meaning Muhammadism. In other words, Wilhelm jesenius the German scholar of the 19th century, is telling his readers that essentially this word in Isaiah 42, 19, mushallam, has the same or nearly the same meaning as the form for participle in Arabic which is the word Muslim, literally Muslim. This servant is called a Muslim. This is the only occurrence of the word Mushallam in the entire Tanakh. I'm almost positive. I couldn't find it anywhere else. Obviously, there's words that are derived from Shalam, right? But Mushallam as as this participle form. And it's describing the prophet of Isaiah 42, who will convert the people of the coastlands, the Keterites, the Nabataeans, will bring divine religion and a new law to the Gentiles. Another coincidence, I guess. Verse 21, we're coming down to the end. I'm going to go through these quickly. Because of his righteousness, his sedek. the Lord was pleased to magnify his instruction and make it glorious. I don't really like that. So the verb for make it glorious OK, and it's in its cow form, it's basic form means to be wide or expansive. And, and the verb here in the Hebrew is is he feel it's causative, which literally means to make expansive. So this servant will refine and perfect the law of God so that all races, all people until the day of judgment will follow it. Verse 22. But this is a people plundered and looted. They're all trapped in holes, hidden in prisons. They've become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say restore. So the Jews, after the destruction of the Second Temple and after the Bar Kokhba rebellion, they found themselves plundered, scattered, and persecuted. The Christians became Trinitarians and the Jews were quite often demonized by many of the early church fathers and theologians for their theology, Islam restored Abrahamic monotheism and vindicated the major aspects of Jewish theology. And the Jews flourished under Muslim rule. The rabbis used to say, We'd rather live under Arabs, Muslims, than under Christian rule, than under Christendom. Verse 23, Who among you will hear this? Let him listen and obey in the future. The last word here in the future is, which means later time the future according to jesenius this prophet will raise up your condition if you obey him o jews o bani isra'el verse 24 who gave jacob to the robber and israel to the plunderers was it not the lord have we not sinned against him they were not walking they were not willing to walk in his ways and they would not listen to his instruction This is a warning. This is called the wa'id in Arabic. Do not let history repeat itself. The Lord punished the Israelites for disobedience in the past. Do not disobey this coming prophet. And finally, the final verse, verse 25. Therefore, he poured out his fury on them and destroyed them in battle. They were enveloped in flames. But they still refused to understand they were consumed by fire but they did not learn their lesson i think this is a reference to the future destruction of the second temple by the romans that israel was punished by god for by and large rejecting jesus the prophet messiah uh, so don't reject the next prophet the prophet of isaiah 42 the prophet muhammad because if you accept his prophecy then you will automatically accept the truth about jesus christ Peace be upon him. So that's the entire chapter. Um, well,
0: congratulations for getting through it. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. And,
1: and just a, a quick book recommendation. Um, oh, yes, please. Yeah, there, there's, a, there's a series of books called, it's a series called The Forms of, of the Old Testament Literature, F-O-T-L. Okay. And there's, there's dozens of these, but the, the two that I recommend are on Isaiah, There's two on Isaiah, Isaiah 1 through 39, which has an introduction to the history and theology, and then Isaiah 40 to 66. They're both by Sweeney, Marvin Sweeney, who's a professor of Hebrew Bible at at Claremont School of Theology. And Sweeney also did a, a good introduction to the entire Tanakh, excellent. It's called Tanakh, a theological and critical introduction to the Jewish Bible. And then John Barton's book on Isaiah is good as well.
0: I, 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 I had the privilege of interviewing John Barton on this channel. If yeah, it's the yeah. same John Barton, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, that, that's uh, sorry. That's just, uh, amazing. There's so much information there. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to cut up this video into smaller yeah. uh, segments because uh, there's uh, there's just so much. Uh, have you concluded, or are you pausing? Yeah, word? that's that's basically
1: <laughs> that's basically my my spiel to use a Yiddish word.
0: <laughs> oh, is that a Yiddish word? I didn't realize it was a Yiddish word. I think I it, it was, is. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um well that's absolutely absolutely uh incredible uh thank you so much i don't know where to start there's so much uh so many gems uh hackneyed word uh in that whole uh discussion there absolutely amazing um and just so, so just thank you very very much Dr. Ali you. Atai, for your incredible efforts to bring to light uh this extraordinary uh passage which is so central to the islamic understanding uh of of Prophet Muhammad upon MVP so absolutely amazing. Thank you for that. Um, so um, maybe we, we will draw draw to a close there. So I, w- I will make efforts to um, reduce the size of this. I've already got. I've already made some notes of some of my favorite uh, segments here, which we can. Uh, uh produced into smaller uh videos i uh, uh, just almost at random you you mentioned at one point where christians complain that uh yahweh is not mentioned in the quran mm. you, you gave a fascinating yeah. and multifaceted response to that because there are different uh elements yeah. to your response uh, one of which i was not aware of so are there. um thank you for that and, and many others as well so is there anything in conclusion um would you like to, to say or uh before we depart
1: well, I would just say, you know, as I said uh, in, in previous podcasts, uh, reminder to uh, keep studying, uh, you know, knowledge, as they say, is, is power. Uh, seek, seek knowledge from reliable sources. Um, yes. uh, uh, supplicate to God for knowledge, right? Every All things are easy with, with with the help of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the beautiful dua in the Quran, which is actually our school motto here at Zaytuna. Uh, oh, my Lord, increase me in knowledge. Mm -hmm. Um, so you know continue to seek knowledge continue to ask god to give you openings and knowledge uh, and uh, may may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless everyone who's watching and everyone who is reached by this video and may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless you paul for this beautiful platform and thank you so much it's uh, it's always great and an honor i'm so excited to the whole week i'm just i'm on cloud nine (laughs) waiting to come and, and speak to you so
0: thank you so much for that. I know many viewers are, are anxiously uh, waiting to see this video. I, I know that because they say so uh, endlessly in comments. So um, uh, that, that's, that's fantastic. Well, well, thank you very much again, uh, Dr. Ali Atai, for your fantastic contribution, uh, enlightening, informative, uh, as always. So uh, until next time. Thank you very thank much. You. Thank you. Bye-bye